Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. Hello, I'm Jenny Bully. On today's podcast, we're talking about a woman who broke the pop mould overnight with her debut single when she was just 16, then went on to become the most singular artist of our era. She is Kate Bush. Sex and spirits and strange phenomena. Songs involving bees and blackbirds, glow-in-the-dark yo-yos and nuclear fallout. With me to chart Kate's extraordinary career via three groundbreaking moments, the 1981 song Sat in Your Lap, her masterpiece of 80s pop adventure Hounds of Love and her 2005 comeback Ariel are the esteemed writers Lucy O'Brien and Tom Doyle. Hello. 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 Kate Bush had already released three albums when the single Sat in Your Lap came out in 1981, 15 months before her fourth album, The Dreaming. So, Tom, tribal drumming, squawking, it's really chaotic sound. I mean, I think with this track, it's amazing because of the fact that it sounds like nothing before or after. And yeah. really what we're hearing here... I mean, there is the influence of uh, Peter Gabriel three on there. You know, if you listen to Intruder, it's got that sort of drum sound. But Kate, at this point, had heard My Life in the Bush of Ghosts by yeah. Eno and Byrne. And, I mean, it was one of my favourite writers when I was a kid, you know, because it was kind of... It was a mind-blower, right? Because it was yeah. it, it took things that Khan had been doing with, like, radio and stuff like that, but actually cut up on tape voices, right, over these sort of polyrhythms and stuff like that. So that's... Even though it doesn't sound like it, the influence of that record is, hangs really heavily over that track and actually over mm. much of the record as well. So, I mean, it wasn't commercially successful particularly, was it? But it was revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first time, you had a bit of this on Never Forever, but this is the first time really on this record that you hear her... Every track is like a short movie. Mm. So, I mean, that's really obvious on things like uh, There Goes a Tenor... And, you know, things like Pull Out the Pin, you know, you really are in the jungle with her there. Yeah. And the yeah. dreaming, you're in the outback, you know, the closing track, Get Out of My House, it's absolutely a horror movie and she's yeah, braying the, like a demented donkey. Literally, by the yeah, end, that's yeah. the Stephen King. Yes, song, that's it. it. I, I feel with this album, she's um, really exploring her voice and the, and the expressiveness of her voice and moving from um, whispers to shrieks and really experimenting with it. I mean, she said afterwards, didn't she? She, she, she said, this is my, oh, she's gone mad album. Mm. But it's almost like she needed to get this out of her system and I felt like she was really pushing to an extremity after Never Forever where she'd started to slip into that quite comfortable commercial niche and I think she freaked at that and felt uncomfortable with that mm. herself because my sense is with her she needs independence and she needs her space as an artist and it was almost like let's do yeah. something that's really going to test everyone. Yeah because that sort of battle for creative control and autonomy is really hung heavy over this well, period That's of the story time. of her career really you know yeah. and I mean the whole thing with the dreaming uh, and EMI is basically they didn't trust her to produce herself, right? Mm. So, I mean, sat in your lap, not a huge hit and stuff like that. And then obviously the Dreaming is a really tough record for her to make because she's moving from studio to studio. It's one of those things like once you're actually in control, you want control. And then once you're actually in control, did you really want it? You know, so I think it with that, it took her a wee while to find her feet, you know, because, I mean, it really is. I mean, it's like Dave Gilmore calls her an auteur, right? And really, yeah. that's what she is, you know? So she's trying to treat sound in visual terms. And that's quite a tough thing, actually, especially, and this is an important point that we'll come on to later, mm. when recording studios at that time were a grand a day. 
So you are yeah. really the one you incredibly expensive, yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. album, wasn't it? Totally. With the Fairlight, that was the first time the Fairlight was really used to full effect. Mm. Um, she, but again, that's where she really explored herself and her potential as a producer mm. as well. Tell me yeah. about the Fairlight. It was a primitive sampler, an 8-bit sampler. Yes. I mean, it only had a few seconds of sample time, right? Mm. And, you know, famously, you know, you, there's this great footage of Peter Gabriel who actually brought it to the UK and stuff in a junkyard, like, smashing up, you know, strip lighting and stuff like that. You know, so it was kind of like, yeah. you know, what do we do, you know, like, yeah. smash glass. And she did that, obviously, on Babushka and stuff. But, mm-hmm. it, I mean, what it does is it gives you, finally, really, as an artist who's interested in doing those things, complete control mm-hmm. over these things. I mean, the Mellotron had done that before, where you could, you know, have orchestras, you know, but the Mellotron was basically inside it, it was just tapes, that are going round right. and round, you know, and they only mm. last for a certain amount of time. So you got to press the key again. Whereas the fair, like you could loop things, and uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were really expensive, and you know, compared to what we have now, I mean, really pretty low rent. Yeah, but basically. I mean, mm. obviously, an amazing thing for someone like Kate, you know, to have complete control over the sounds that she was creating. Mm. And because, you know, her music is so kind of dense and layered, it must have suited her really well to be able to build it up. Well, yeah, and you've got to remember, Mm. I mean, her story is one of control in loads of areas. You know, control over her sound is the the main one, really, you know. So suddenly have this... And have engineers that were great. it's fundamental as a musician to, um, that's what you are, is your sound and Mm -hmm. um, your uniqueness. Um, And that's what she's jealously fought for and guarded um, right from the beginning. So Lucy, Kate's kind of breaking the glass ceiling here to an extent, isn't she? Yes, she she broke new ground in in a lot of ways, and I think it's in her decision making at really quite key points. Mm. Um, an example is like at the age of ninety, you know, I think she's so young, and there she is in the music industry, where as as a young female artist, everyone at each stage is telling you what to do. Yeah, but she um, managed to set down those boundary lines quite clearly. For instance. The EMI wanted her to release James and the Cold Gun as her first single. That's right. And she insisted on Wuthering Heights. So um, that was the real breakout single. And she had um, amazing success from that. And then um, the early promotion, the EMI promotional department having her wearing very, very tight, revealing tops. And then she soon um, put an end to that because she felt she was being um, promoted um, just, as she said, people lost sight of the artist. It was just all about the female body that she was in. And then another example is uh, with the album Lionheart, uh, you know, one of her Mm. early albums. She felt that the pressure to put that out really quickly and she was dissatisfied with it. Mm. And then... Ever since then, she's always taken her time. And we know, you know, sometimes do, yeah. years and years. Mm. But that's the auteur, the artist, is actually Absolutely. giving herself the creative space to make the music she needs yeah. to make. And the time, you know, the time that it takes to do all that multi-layered work is, it's like editing a film, isn't it? Totally. The amount yeah. of time yeah, yeah, yeah. and attention it yeah. takes. And it, for her, it will take as long as it takes. Yeah, and, and, you know, it can't be underestimated how hard it is to turn around, especially when you're a teenager, as she was at the beginning. Yes, And incredibly say no to the machine, to, you know, all these yes. older men. And particularly, amazing. you know, we're talking like 1979, 1980, yeah. when female artists, particularly solo female artists, just didn't have that power. Also, um, don't forget so it shows she had yeah. a real strength, strength Absolutely. of mind there. I mean, don't forget the Wuthering Heights itself was sonically groundbreaking, you know, because, I mean, nobody sung like that. You know, and you've got guys like the Harry Cornflake, 
Blake, right, on Radio <laughs> yeah. 1 going whack, whack, oops, you know what I mean? I think I'm playing this at the wrong speed, you know. Yeah. Well, he wasn't, was he? You know? And even the yeah. video, right? I mean, my wife, hello, Karen, when she's a bit drunk, can do the entire routine, right, of Wuthering Nights. So, and very well, actually. Very good, right, yeah. you know. So, I mean, it was groundbreaking stuff right from the beginning. Absolutely, wasn't it? Yeah. absolutely. So Kate thought that people wouldn't understand the dreaming, and to some extent she was right. But it did pave the way for Hounds of Love, didn't it, Lucy? <laughs> Absolutely. And what I thought was quite interesting, because around Never Forever and then the dreaming, um, people um, got a little disenchanted with Kate. There, there was a time where people felt she'd gone off the boil a bit and um, and there were rather odd songs like Babushka and it's like, where's she going? And it all felt mm. a bit whimsical. And uh, I remember talking to my friend Don Watson, who was writing for NME at the time, and we were both writing for NME, and he said, oh, I've got the new Kate Bush album to review. I said, I was laughing. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, what's... No, he said, no, actually, it's really, really good. Um, she's doing something mm. completely new. And then when I heard Running Up That Hill, I thought, oh, God, this is just amazing. Wow. And I felt she'd really found her sound then. Mm. It was like um, the work before that was great. There were some fantastic songs, but Hounds of Love was the first time on an album that everything seemed to come together and was mm. really locked in together, the percussion, the melody, the lyrics and her voice. Mm. And she found that sound in a barn in Kent, didn't she, Tom? She'd moved out of London and built a studio. Yeah. How important was the location? Oh, massively think? important because, mm. I mean, you know, it goes back to that thing that I was saying earlier about how expensive the studios were, right? So... Yeah. A lot of artists would be clock-watching and she spent a lot of money on the Dreaming and then it hadn't sold. Mm. But the, the massively important thing about going back there is she was actually back. The live room of that studio was the sort of grain barn where she had, as a young girl, written all these songs. So she yeah. was returning back to her spiritual home, really. And obviously by spending the album budget on the equipment, so she bought an SSL, she had her own Fairlight by that point and stuff like that, then yeah. it just gave her, you know endless time to make these first records and that's what you can hear you can hear that all the stuff that she was trying on the dreaming really comes in a sharp focus on this record and also it's a commercial success yeah so that she was it you know when mm. i interviewed her there was a funny bit where she was saying "Ooh, can't produce myself oh can't hear what you're saying now EMI." you know because <laughs> obviously it sold really well so yeah. yes. complete vindication at this yes, point absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and it's you know it is a very high-tech record but I think the, perhaps the key commercial difference was that it still sounds incredibly human yes, and emotional. Yes, yes. And what I, uh, listening to it again, I thought, oh, isn't it interesting? So we're talking like 85 and she's absorbing everything and maybe unconsciously as well as consciously because, you know, you hear a lot of soul in there yep. and, you know, in some, a, a record like The Big Sky, mm. um, you almost hear like the New York session player somehow in there and the funky bass lines and um, the gospel chorus. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason why it crossed over in America as well. That was her first yeah, real big success in the mm. States. Yeah, 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 totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, it's really packed with lyrically particularly yes. it's very packed with ideas the, the thing I like about she doesn't write obviously yes she talks about love but you know sometimes in that really screwed up way we experience love mm. you know it's not moon in June straightforward <laughs> romance it never is mm. and um, what I love about running up that hill you could almost argue that's the first gender fluid pop song where she's kind of yeah. embodying the male in herself as well as the female and she expresses that with her vocal style mm. um, and um, so you feel like you 
you're you're in there with her experience. Yeah, definitely. Tom, side two, the ninth wave, which is the so we've got the pop songs on side one, and then we've got all this kind of huge conceptual lick on side two. Tell me about that. It's a stoner classic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Which I know I was eighteen when that record came out, so I'm talking I'm talking from very deep experience here. You know? <laughs> But I mean, it's a, it's you know, it's very much an open-ended thing, you know, because it, mm. it opens with this girl who's in the sea, wearing a life jacket, mm. and you've no idea. I mean, she doesn't tell you why this girl is in the sea, but she's trying to stay awake. And the way that I've always interpreted it is that she's failing to, so she's sort of slipping in and out of consciousness, yeah. you know, which is where the sort of trippier aspects of it come. And you know, watching you without me, I mean, you know, the fact that she's just. It sounds like she's singing behind some sort of gauze, as if she's yeah. in a parallel universe, basically, you know. And something like Waking the Witch is terrifying. It's scary, yeah. It's a really mm-hmm. terrifying mm-hmm. thing. I mean, I remember her saying that she was a bit disappointed with that. Really? <laughs> I think she maybe wanted it to be scarier, you know. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, really, it is that thing, you know, it's like you must wake up, you must wake up. And then it's it slams into this thing where she is basically being subjected to a witch's trial, you know, and it's like mm. sink, float, blah, 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 you know. But yeah, I mean, obviously now, having seen the show and stuff like that, we can sort of see more of where her thoughts were when she was creating this. Yeah, thing, that you was know. fascinating. But, I mean, wasn't it, it definitely well, illustrated it. You know, it did we'll come? But, but yeah, we'll come at that. But at yeah. the time, I mean, it did leave a lot of sort of space for you to imagine. Absolutely. What the hell was going on? Uh, the innovation inherent in mm. Hands of Love, Lucy, is it maybe the balance that she achieves between the conceptual stuff and the and the pop songs? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's the way um, you have those intense melodies, but also the percussiveness and, and the rhythms, but everything's locked in together. And um, each song is really developed and there's so much going on conceptually, but you never lose the thread. And I, you can tell that this is something that was worked on and worked on and worked on. And it doesn't have that scattershot feel of some of her earlier work. You, you feel like there is a vision from start to yeah. finish and um, in the stories that she's telling. Yeah, and again, that probably comes down to the autonomy that she had and the, yes. how comfortable she was in... Definitely, yeah, yes. yeah. I, I feel together. it's a very personal process for her and she has to feel comfortable. And if she's not mm. feeling comfortable... There's a distractedness, and then her music just doesn't have the power. And I think it's one of the few albums that she retrospectively likes still, isn't it? I think it's probably the only one, actually, (laughs) being honest with you. Yeah, when I spoke to her, she said that she knew she was getting better at making records because she was less disappointed with them, which is a really, you know, it's an important thing. And I mean, actually, it's one of those things that I get the feeling, and this is... You know, I mean, it's like challenging her fans. I don't ever think she really is challenging her fans. I think she's just doing what she wants. Yeah. Right? And I think in any creative process, if you're sitting there and you're thinking about what people are going to be thinking about what music you're making or even what you're writing or whatever, then it really inhibits you, you know. Yeah. And we can yeah. hear, you know, when people are trying to follow up a hit or a hit mm, album definitely. or they're trying to, yeah. you know, do a version of the book that sold well yeah. or something. Mm. And it always ends up being watered down. And so I think... With Kate, she's starting with a, a fresh page every time and really yeah. just following her creativity, which is what makes it so pure. Definitely. Hold that thought, Tom. Now for a word about our sponsor, Jaguar. Oh yeah, you're amazing. We think you're incredible. Uh, to demonstrate the radical potential of 80s technology, for this next part, I'm going to run my voice through the Fairlight synthesizer. Are you ready? Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. I think that's enough of that. 
You're listening to the Mojo Podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. At Mojo, we're always learning new things from old. We get, for instance, that history complements and informs our understanding of the best new music. Jaguar work the same way, and their collaboration in the new Jaguar XE with the premium audio brand Meridian shows how heritage values and a cutting-edge outlook can sit side by side in perfect comfort. Wow. Amazing. Done. Uh, today's podcast, we're talking about Kate Bush. Uh, so now we've got to Ariel, 2005. And Tom, it's around this time that you get the call to go to Kate's house and conduct her first interview in 12 years. Were you as nervous as one another? I would say we probably were, right? <laughs> because, you know, but for not for very long, maybe the first 10 minutes or something. Mm. I mean, I always maintain that really, you know, I, to, I mean, to have a little rewind here, I had this massive sort of starstruck experience right in front mm. of David Bowie in the early 90s, right? And it was so obvious, you know, and he was kind of trying to console me and it was just, <laughs> oh, God. So if it was physically possible, right, I kicked my own ass and decided that I would never be starstruck again. And so with famous people, I mean, I always think that they're only ever really famous for the first five or ten minutes or whatever, and then after yeah. that, you're just talking to a person, right? But this was a bit of a strange scenario because there'd been a lot of build-up, right, between, like, the management, the label, and Mojo mm. itself and stuff. And so it, it was kind of, you know, quite a tense thing. And I didn't even know where I was going because she wanted to keep where uh, she lived at the time, which I'm not quite sure. I think she's moved. So let's not, you know, right. go too much into the location or whatever. Didn't they want to put a bag over your yeah, head? Yeah, well, this was the joke. No, this is the joke. This the driver turned up at my door, right? And he wouldn't tell me where we were going, right? And I'm, all I knew was that it was somewhere near Reading. So he, it turned out he was her normal driver, regular mm. driver. And he said, oh, he must have, she must have been talking about you when she was in the back seat the other day, just saying, oh, shouldn't we just put a bag on his head? You know, like this, <laughs> which is just brilliant. And that, which kind of, that was the, the first sort of icebreaker before I got there. And yeah, we were nervous maybe for the first five or ten minutes. And then particularly after an hour, right, I could see her and she said it. She said, oh, I'm feeling quite relaxed now. <laughs> and I said, can I have a break and have a fag? You know, and so there yeah. was a lot of kind of hanging about the garden and look, we'll go back and do another half an hour and we'll do this and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so I kind of forgot that it was Kate Bush until I went away at the loo at one point. I walked back into the room. And she was sort of just, it was just the way the light had caught her face and she was kind of gazing out the window. And I kind of went, wow, that's Kate <laughs> Bush, right? And then it kind of, <laughs> bang, you know, out of yeah. that again and then right back into the thing. <laughs> I mean, I did push her that day because, I mean, it was a four-hour interview and it, yeah, she really, you know, yeah, day, yeah, it was a long one, actually. She's never yeah. done that since, I think. <laughs> no, I think that was it. That was her broken... She finds it a bit painful, doesn't she? Yeah. Experiences like that. That's I a mean, long time for anyone. she's bored after four hours, being honest with you. She had this sort of squelchy <laughs> yeah. thing, you know, like a kid's toy, you know, like that funny yeah. putties thing, and she started, like, making fart noises and going, <laughs> I'm getting a bit bored now. I was thinking, I'm getting a bit bored now, but we better, let's crack on, you know, because we've got you here and let's get it done, so... <laughs> and she was quite um, cross about being sort of typecast as this recluse, wasn't she? Oh, she was bloody furious about it, yeah, yeah, and she was swearing like a sailor, right? right. Uh, you know, because, I mean, I get it, absolutely, because... Actually, being in her house and in the grounds and stuff, it's not like some massive sort of place, right? But she would say things like, she would say, you know, people come by from the pub on, you know, Friday, Saturday night, and they'll <laughs> buzz the intercom, right? And you pick it up, and they're shouting things through it. And then she said that a few weeks beforehand, the one of the newspapers, I'll not mention which one, had... Mm flown a helicopter over the property, taking pictures of it and stuff mm. like that. And I think what you've got to remember about her is that she's not 
someone who sought fame. Mm. She wanted to make records, but she didn't really want to become a celebrity. So when celebrity, particularly in this century, has become such yeah. a big mm. thing, you know, mm. uh, I think really you've kind of got to respect the fact that she wants to retreat from it yeah. and some of the nastier aspects of it as well, mm. you know, because it was, mm. it was one of the papers when her son was pretty young ran this story about how she was scared about him being kidnapped and, do you know, I mean, it's just mm, awful yeah, stuff. Horrible. And she did say at one point that she had considered maybe not even putting Ariel out because it would be inviting all this stuff mm. back in. But at the same time, I said, well, you know, could, could you just make music for yourself? And she said, yeah. well, no, she's like Shakespeare play is not Shakespeare play without the audience, you know, so mm, it's the, sure. you know. So, I mean, I think it's a tough thing for her and... I think it'd be a tough thing for anybody who yeah. never really looked for fame no. and then suddenly had it land on them. Ariel itself was rightly heralded as a major comeback. And it, again, it's full of ideas and, and very long. You know, it's yeah. double LP. Uh, what's unique about it, Lucy? I think there's there's a lot of things that are incredibly unique. And there's certain um, songs that for me really stood out the first time I heard it. I mean, I absolutely love Bertie, the song dedicated to her son, um, because I think it's very difficult to write a love song to your child. Mm. Um, mostly they turn out very mawkish. Yeah. But this just totally captured that feeling of joy that you have about your children, but in a way that's not sentimental. And I think a lot of it's in the arrangements and using um, that Renaissance sound and mm. using early instruments so there's an authenticity to it. And you think, what a fantastic idea. So she's almost doing this courtly dance mm. of happiness and just lovely, lovely Bertie. And you, you kind of, it doesn't seem mawkish at all or, or sugary. No, not um, And then juxtapose that with a song like Mrs. Bartolozzi, which is essentially song. about a washing machine and someone looking at the washing going around. Ah, is it though? But also, it's a woman reflecting in quiet desperation on her marriage. Well, that's the way I interpret it. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, her songs are so open to interpretation. Um, I have a rather um, embarrassing story about that song. When, when we went to listen to Ariel, a whole load of people from Mojo went, and it, I was quite new in the job then, and we went to her then manager's house. And when that song came on, I, I've no idea why, but it really moves me. I think there's something about the... Yes. It's about the love that goes into, you know, menial tasks. and It's yes. about expressing love through little things like doing the family's washing. Yeah. And I started crying, like, really but, crying. But I found it really emotional. <laughs> I nearly started crying with it. Anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, wait, that was that, really. And Do you know what? I think it's a song about grief. Right, I think it's yes. a song about grief. I think that the character in there, I think her partner has died. Right, mm. and I suggested this to her, and she said, "Oh, that's interesting." Right, yeah. and she mm. said, "Other people have thought that it's maybe about a murder." Right, there's been a murder <laughs> or something like that. But what she did say was, she said, "If you take someone's clothes right and you put them out on the floor," she said, "It is the person you can sort of see the person." Yeah. Right, so it's the whole idea that. You know, these clothes are hanging on the washing line and and say the person is absent, it's about grief, then the mm. wind is animating yes. the clothes, yeah. you know. So yes. that's what I think it is. You know, and similarly, I mean the one that gets me is a coral room because oh, it's amazing. so oh, yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah. And because yes. and she did say that she had thought about not releasing that one as well because it's so personal, you know, it's yeah. about her mother and it's about the passing of time, but it's all yeah. also very open-ended. But that's the mm. beauty of it, isn't yeah. it? Again, you Absolutely. know, so in the same way that Bertie captures that feeling of um, love for your child 
that captures grief at losing your mother. Yes, you know, and the way grief totally kind of untethers memories. Yes. And it's like that yes. Joan Didion book, isn't it? But in five minutes or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, and I love the way that she's reflecting a domestic world. And, you know, there's an extremity to that that's with the same approach that she did the dreaming. It's like, I'm mm. not going to compromise. I'm not going to make something that's, you know, typically commercial. I'm going to sing about a washing machine. Um, and yet how interesting that this becomes one of her most successful albums. I mean, when you first hear that track, you just think, is she going to sing Washing Machine again, right? And there's a pause and there's a pause. And, yeah. and that's, that's so the brilliant, thing. Yeah, I know, it? that's what it makes is. it brilliant, the right? daringness of yeah, it. Yeah, it's all... Yeah, yeah and everyone fact... was laughing when we when yeah. Mojo went to hear it, except for me sobbing in the corner. Right, yeah, 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 yeah it's all... And, and yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know, maybe there's an oblique, she's having a sort of sly laugh in calling the album Ariel, you know, thinking about <laughs> washing powder. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we have established, sadly, that it's a different spelling, but I, I yes, love that theory. That's yes, great, yeah, yeah. A meta-narrative. Yes, absolutely. And then uh, the second half of Ariel, The Sky of Honey, she paired with the Ninth Wave for the live show. Yeah, I mean, well, door. Sky of Honey, I mean, the, the whole thing about Birdsong in there is yeah. amazing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. do you know this, right? I mean, honestly, I've got a wood pigeon, right, and outside my window most mornings, right? And it goes, ooh, 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 ooh. But it does it kind of like a football hooligan. It's a pretty aggressive wood pigeon. <laughs> And all I hear is I'm waking up in my head is a sky. Oh, funny. A sky. Oh, funny. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. cheers, Kate. You know? yeah. <laughs> because it's her. It's her it impersonating all those yeah, birds. Yeah, on absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, you know, the blackbird was the most complex to learn. And you just think that's so brilliant, isn't <laughs> it? it? Is. Yeah. You know? She spent yeah. all that time yeah, studying yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Perhaps we should move on to Before the Dawn because we can't really discuss Kate Bush without talking about her as a mm. performer. Now, Lucy, mm. I believe you actually saw her only tour, the tour of life in 1979. Yes, yes. I I was a teenager and um, I remember I went to Southampton Gaumont and it was this amazing, very, very theatrical show uh, with 17 costume changes and um, it seemed very busy, very vibrant, very colourful and there's certain standout moments. um, One where she was um, singing The Man with the Child in in His Eyes Mm. and she was doing her almost Lindsay Kemp <laughs> star yeah. moves uh, with her leotard and kind of wispy ballet skirt. And then I think the the, the um, most amazing moment was towards the end uh, where she was singing um, Oh England, My Lion Heart and, mm. and she's dressed in this World War II, looking like a World War II pilot and surrounding her on the stage is the parachute. And it was intensely moving, actually. And there, there were things about that show that felt very new and very groundbreaking. And, and it was the first time I'd seen someone use a radio mic, for instance. And I think that yes, was... Yes, I think they invented that the, for they did. her, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. and really using it. And it was a multimedia experience as well, and that had never really been done. No. I think she you know, rock it. shows were actually, much... They didn't cheer. invent it for her. Yeah, yeah, she asked, Apologies. you know, is there yes. any way that I can get something like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And she did yeah. say that afterwards when she sees people like Madonna or whatever, she'd be like, I did that for yeah. you. No, I mean, I don't yes. think she'd be big-headed enough to go, I invented that. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, it, it made a huge difference yes. to the show, didn't so it? So it was this huge multimedia experience, mm. and it's quite interesting. I mean, at that point, everyone assumed, oh, this is her first tour, and she'll be, like, touring each album, and, yeah. you know, that she'll be, like, a typical rock star doing... And that was it. That was it. Yeah. Um, she was in charge of every single aspect of that show, 
And she found the experience totally exhausting. And I think as well, tragically, her lighting designer um, died yes, um, yeah. in, uh, one, on one of the dates. Um, so I think there was a bit of trauma associated with that. And she was also very young. I mean, she was only 21, for yeah, God's sake, yeah, when, yeah. when she got this. I mean, this is the thing we sometimes forget, you know, when we talk about her albums. A lot of yeah. that work was done in her very early 20s. Totally. You think about the work yeah. you, you know, I think about things I wrote at 21. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. they're not perfect by any means. I couldn't even make so. spaghetti bolognese when I was 21. <laughs> yeah. I never mind do that. And there was magic too. Well, she did magic tricks. Yes, yeah, so she incorporated magic. She had a magician um, doing magic tricks. There was a, there was um, a whole sequence with that. Um, I think she wanted to kind of create the feeling of this this um, amazing, almost fairground feel. Very colourful, very vibrant. And you know, magic as a theme is something that's that's cropped up in lots of ways in in her work and and different songs. It means a lot to her. Mm. So it's quite interesting that she was exploring it there and exploring it visually as well. So, Tom, come before the dawn, Mm. she really does step things up, doesn't she? She's got obviously set the bar very high in 1979. It must have been... Incredible photo. Yeah, to... I mean, when I interviewed her, I did push her gently. Well, maybe not you quite did. so you gently, you, you actually. It, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, it was my all yeah. down to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I'd, you know, obviously everybody had wanted to see her perform. And I was sort of saying, look, it, it wouldn't have to be like the last tour or whatever. You know, it could just be you and, you know, a piano and a small band in somewhere like Shepherd's Bush Empire. And she was very sort of regal about it. And she, you know, it's like you can <laughs> tell, you, right, when she doesn't, <laughs> yes, it was like, when she and doesn't like do? that idea, it's like, oh, that's interesting, you know. Well, maybe I will do it one of these days, you know, I'll grab my Zimmer frame, get out there and surprise everyone, right? So, I mean, it really was a surprise when she announced these shows and nobody really knew what she would do and I went on the second night so I'd read Oh, same as me Yeah, yeah was it? Mm. There, there? I think I went on the second night on about the 15th or something like that right? <laughs> and the thing that was surprising about it was that it started off as a normal gig really you know it's like I think it was five or six songs and then suddenly right exploded into this complete theatrical production and you know we maybe expected the ninth wave but not the way that it was presented possibly you know because I suppose after the tour of life you thought maybe she would just do something straighter uh, but the, the, it was anything but and then obviously the second half was Sky of Honey mm. Uh, which was equally theatrical and the thing that was amazing about the show as well actually was that after all these sort of visual fireworks it just ended up with her doing you know, a couple of tunes at the piano, you know. Uh, or one, I think it was only one she did at the piano on her own, actually, at the end. Yeah. Well, amongst the Angels. Oh, that's that was, right. Yeah, that's, that's right, finish. yeah. Which yeah. was actually probably the most moving bit of the whole show, which just sort of shows that if if she did just did something that was stripped down like that, that it would have as much power, power as yeah. the huge production. Unfortunately, the DVD's never come out, has it? We've had the soundtrack album, but we've yeah, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons for that, actually. I mean, sometimes when you see things, I'm sure, on film that you thought were really impressive, mm. right, and then maybe see them in that sort of two-dimensional way, you think, mm, it looks great or whatever, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I suppose one of the great things about it and what she said is that she would rather, I mean, the, the live album's there, and she would rather yeah. the show existed in the memories of people who saw it, which yeah. is a great line, whether it's true mm, or not, true. you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. 
Well, it's a live experience, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And it just sounds like um, uh, you had to be there with the sound, you know, yeah. just immersed in that whole experience and the energy that she was kind of summoning up. And it's impossible to capture that on a DVD, really, isn't it? And it's also That's the true. opposite of people filming every bloody thing on yes. their phone. Yeah. It gets, yes. you know, because it's yes. like, let it exist in your memory yeah. mm. and also in your imagination a bit as well, yeah. you know, because it kind of... You know, it remains magical, put it that Absolutely. way. Yeah. And it was, it was the first show I'd ever been to with a total phone ban, yeah. and everybody stuck to it. Totally. I but I think maybe that contributed to the energy of, of the yes, night. Perhaps. You know, yeah. if, if people yeah. weren't distracted by their phones and they were just just locked in with her. Mm. Well, it was designed to yeah. be an immersive experience, yes. you know, and if people yes. are checking their bloody emails, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. not quite going to be mm. have mm. quite that immersive it's true. Quality, yes. is it? And she did have an army of, you know, people walking up and down the aisles, sort of shushing and... That's right, I remember <laughs> really? that, actually. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, do you think we'll ever see her on stage again? I think it's impossible to second-guess Kate Bush, yeah. right? Who knew that she would come back anyway, yeah, you know? Well, yeah. and part of her might have really enjoyed the experience, but I suspect she maybe felt as if, oh, well, I've done that now, right? And I can move on to something completely different because what she never does, really, is repeat herself. So the whole idea that she would get up at Hammersmith and do another 30 nights or, you know, with a different production, maybe might happen, you know, or maybe that thing of doing it in a smaller way where it's Mm. just music and it's not a theatrical production, that could happen. I've got a feeling she might do something very pared down and quite intimate. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, maybe Mm. just with a few uh, instruments, few musicians, you know, um, basing it around the piano. A lot of her really, really um, most beautiful work is is, is around her her voice and piano. Perhaps we can uh, order it cosmically. Come on, Kate. Exactly. Yes, send out the vibes. And on that, we say thank you very much to Tom Doyle and to Lucy O'Brien. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, I'll be talking about David Bowie with his biographer, Paul Trinker, and Mojo senior editor and in-house Bowie wonk, Danny Eccleston. To hear all the music discussed on this podcast, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. The Mojo Innovators podcast was brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Jenny Bully. Thank you for listening. <laughs>